Okay, Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, and the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no, night, need, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, uh, we pray that you enable us to approach this uh, proclamation of your word, this hearing of your word, this study with the right attitude of heart. We are hearing from you this morning. This, this is your word. God breathed. So we pray, Lord, open our spiritual ears. We are dull of hearing. Open our understanding that we may grasp the points here that you are communicating, the significance here that you are communicating to your people. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for these promises of eternal life in your presence to know You, to be with You forever and ever. Lord, thank You for so great a salvation. Help us in all that we do here to honor You. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 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 Be seated. Well, Lord willing... We will complete our study in the book of Revelation tonight. Um, 
with uh, verses 6 through 21 in chapter 22. So I hope you can be here for that. And uh, we will also try to, uh, um, if we can, we'll, we'll also try to reserve time for uh, questions and, and interaction. Um, so if, if I uh, read something, say something, if there's something I don't deal with in the text this morning or something like that and you want to talk about it tonight or, or maybe you have questions about something that, that I said, we'll try to, we'll try to do that. Uh, we're also planning this evening to take the Lord's Supper, so, so um, we'll see how, how that works out time-wise. But, but uh, if we can, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have our, our last, probably our last Q&A on the book of Revelation tonight, at least for a while, okay? And along with, as I said, I'm going to deal with the rest of chapter 22. Um, it's been, a, to me, a rich study and and uh, it's 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 really helpful, I think. Uh, you know, the study that we're doing. Those of you who are coming to Sunday school, the study that we're that we're doing there that on the the meta narrative of the Bible, um, helping us help it's helping us tie all the um, different things together, connect the dots, as it were, um, the storyline, the scripture, and then what we're dealing with here. You know, the fact that we've been doing these things simultaneously, I think, is, is a great help because we're going through the scripture, seeing these promises, and then here we are in the book of Revelation, seeing the fulfillment of, of many of these things. And it's just a it's just a rich rich study. Obviously, um, there's a lot here. What Joel just read. Um, but I wanted to take it all together because it is essentially what we're getting here is a description of the New Jerusalem uh, in, in the verses that he just read. So it's all tied together um, pretty tight. So I, so I wanted to do it that way. But obviously I'm not going to be able to uh, cover everything. I'm going to try to hit the, the high points here and hopefully drive home what I think is the, uh, the, the main message going here. Now, now I, will, I will say this. as a What I usually try to do is... is Take what I think is the is the main point, and that's what I'm always looking for. You know, the main point in the passage that we're dealing with, and then kind of working out from there. Um, but I try to put the main point in in a sentence, single sentence, to to give it to you. Hopefully, that's helpful. But here it is for for the passage this morning. God will fulfill all of His covenant promises, achieving full and eternal victory over sin and death bringing His people into the blessed state of eternal holiness and gladness in His presence. Um, that's what we have here. I, I, you know, as, as I was doing that, I, I thought about Psalm 1611, where the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In Your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, if that's true, and certainly it is true, then where we are in our study in the book of Revelation, what we're seeing here is the, the, the fulfillment of the fullest reality of that. I mean, we're talking about being in the presence of the Lord forever. Forever. Just unending. Somebody, uh, Robert, commented a while ago that Sunday school never seems long enough, you know, cause we had, just because we were having a good time in the discussion back there. Well, just imagine, just, 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 <laughs> just experiencing the fullness of joy in the very presence of the Lord and not having to worry about somebody saying, Time's up! <laughs> it just goes... On forever and ever. Fellowship is sweet, but you know what's going to be even more sweet? Being in direct, unhindered fellowship with the Lord Himself. Unhindered by sin. Unhindered by our human weaknesses. In His presence, experiencing His joy. um, The fullness of it, forever and ever. So here it is again. God will fulfill all of His covenant promises achieving full and eternal victory over sin and death, bringing His people into the blessed state of eternal holiness and gladness in His presence. And that will last forever, ever. Now, as I already mentioned, this passage, um, the way that we've got it broken down here, Revelation 21, 9 through chapter 22, verse 5, essentially... 
Uh, and you could even back up a little bit, but I, but I dealt with some of it last week, verses 1 through, um, verses 1 through 8. But this is essentially dealing with a description. And what we have here is a description of the new Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning and, and uh, some of the um, implications that flow from that. What, what, what's going on here? So, so I'm just going to kind of walk through here, hit some of the, the, what I think are the main points here in the, in the description, and then we'll, again, then we'll talk about the uh, implications for, uh, that, that come out of that. So let's just start with the city. That's where we're starting here in, in verse 9. Uh, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Interesting. And then it says in verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what is um, what is this city? It calls the holy city, or you could say it this way: What is the identity? Now, now we've been seeing as we've been moving through the book of Revelation, right? There's a, there's a lot of symbolism used, and I think that's what we have here as well. That's why I'm saying: What, is it, what does it represent? What's what what is it um, what is it a sign pointing to? What does it symbolize? Because I think this is symbolism. All right. So, but what is it? What is the identity of this city? Well, let's be reminded first of all of verse two. Look, look back. Um, in fact, I'll start in verse one. But go, go back to the beginning of the chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, what we talked about last week: the old is passing away, and at this point, uh, all things become new. And what's new? Well, for one thing, a new heaven and a new earth. Probably a way of saying really all of creation. So, so you could say the universe, or, if there, or maybe we should make that plural. Like I said last week, you know, uh, the, the universes, <laughs> whatever all God created out there. And there, you know, uh, scientists look out there today, and and uh, with a Hubble telescope and all, and they, 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 I guess they're looking for the end, but it, but it keeps going and it, and it keeps going, and they keep discovering new galaxies and so forth. Well, whatever's out there. That God created, the totality of it, I think, um, that becomes new. So the old passes away and all things become new. So there's new heaven, new earth. And then he goes on to say, um, for the first earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. In verse 2, and I saw the holy city. There's that phrase again. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Out of heaven from God. Same phrase that we that we have here in verse ten. Same uh, same terminology. So he's describing the New Jerusalem as a holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared, he goes on to say, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Interesting. And then you get down to verse 9 where we just read a moment ago. And, he said, and the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, we should all be familiar by now with uh, the Lamb. What does the Lamb symbolize? Jesus. Amen. Christ. Christ. You go back to chapter 4 and there uh, all the uh, attention, uh, chapter 4 and 5, all attention goes to heaven um, to uh, God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And remember, they were seeking for someone worthy to open the scroll that the one who was seated on the throne was holding in his hand. And they searched high and low, quite literally, heaven and earth uh, and under the earth. And, and, and nobody was found worthy to open the scroll. But then the voice comes and says to John, Weep not, because John was weeping. Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah... The root of Jesse, the root of David, is worthy. And John looks again, he turns and looks, and he says, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. And then we've seen that term used repeatedly throughout the book. It's referring to Jesus. Well, the, the, the bride here, we're told, that John is seeing in verse, in verse 9, the bride is the wife of the lamb. 
And remember last chapter, you know, we, we, um, we saw a, a blessing. Blessed are those who are invited to the, to the marriage supper. Well, here's the bride and here's the groom. The bride, the wife of the lamb, and the lamb. And of course, the lamb is Christ. Who then is the bride? The bride is the church. The bride is the church. All believers. I would say all believers from all ages. So when we're talking about the identity of the New Jerusalem, what is what is this city, this holy city, symbolize? It is representative of the church, the people of God. So I don't I don't I don't think it is to be thought of as um, a, a, a geographic area. Although we're going to see some measurements here in a minute, but I don't think it's to be thought of as a literal geographic area like uh, like Shreveport, Bossier. But it is a body of people, and you may remember back in chapter um, seventeen and eighteen when we were going through the, the destruction of Babylon, and I talked there about this um, struggle that we we are seeing throughout the Book of Revelation between the city. Of God and the city of man. Well, this is the city of God. This is the people of the kingdom of God, the holy city. Except now we're seeing the people of God in our glorified state, in the eternal state. Because remember, um, this is on the other side of the great judgment. The great judgment day that we dealt with uh, last week and week prior. So, the city is the church, the wife of the Lamb. So, you go back to verse 2, and he says, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That's because um, this is symbolic of the church. It is the bride. And again, you go back to verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me what? A holy city, right? Not, I mean, you're expecting it. Well, he, he showed me a woman dressed in a bridal gown. No. He, he, he said, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. So, the identity of the, the city is... The church. It, it represents the church. I notice a couple of things here that hopefully I'll get to come back to and spend a little more time on, but uh, if not, maybe tonight. But um, a couple of things here. First, the, the shine of the city. <laughs> notice that in verse 11 when he says, I saw the city coming down from God, out of heaven uh, from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So this, this city is radiating the glory of God. Shining, shining with the glory of God. And I really think, uh, and I, as I said, hopefully I'll, I'll come back to this and spend a little more time on it because I, I want to tie these things together. But I, I, I really think that uh, when he says earlier, that the city is like a bride prepared for the bridegroom. That's, that's what's happening here. In other words, she's being made beautiful. And what beautifies the church? Well, to reflect the glory of God. To look like Him. To, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, she shines with the glory of God, having the glory of God. And then, secondly, the shape of the city. This is just kind of an interesting note, I think. Like I said, there's a lot of, lot of, of uh, uh, symbolism here. And you get to uh, um, down to verse 16. He says, the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Uh, my understanding is that's roughly 1,500 miles. And its length and its width and height are equal. So you, you know what that means. You, you've got a giant cube. 
Same width, same length, same height. And it's huge. And like I say, I don't, I don't take this to be understood literally as, as though there's a literal city 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Some people do. Some people take it literally. I don't, I don't think that's necessary here. Um, I think, it's, again, it's talking about the church, but it is, it is large, isn't it? It's big. It's like the uh, innumerable multitude we saw, we saw a, a few chapters back. And it's cube-shaped. Well, that's interesting. D.A. Carson notes that the only other cube mentioned in the Bible is the Holy of Holies. And that may be the entire reason uh, that this city is described as a cube, four square, to associate it with the Holy of Holies. You remember the Holy of Holies? That was the innermost part of the Old Testament tabernacle or, and our temple where God manifested His very presence in a unique way. So much so that nobody could enter in. You could enter in, but you wouldn't come... You wouldn't do it twice because <laughs> you didn't come back out alive. So no, nobody could enter in except the high priest who even he could only enter once a year at the appointed time, the Day of Atonement. And he would go in and first offer, uh, he would offer sacrifice for his own sins and then offer sacrifices for the sins of the nation. And other than that, nobody was permitted there because it was the most holy place where God's presence was manifest. And even in the Old Covenant, where you have a, 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 a nation created by God and chosen out from among the other nations, set aside for His own purposes to receive His special revelation, even in that context, there was always some separation between God and man. And so the Holy of Holies had this, of course, the, the walls, and then in the entranceway had this huge veil that separated a holy God from everything else. I mean, that's, that's what it represented. You know, the people had to be on the outside. And you could not enter within the veil. <clears throat> At least if you did, it cost you your life. So all that to say this, that's probably what we're intended to associate this with. So in other words, this is the dwelling place of God. And we know that to be that at least to be correct, don't we? You go back to verse 3, and you, you see, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man, He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. So, the holy city descends from heaven, out of heaven from God, and, and the, the significance of that is that this is to be the holy place where God dwells with man. Secondly, the temple. The temple. First was the city. And then we had some description there. And, and then, uh, of course, we're really still talking about uh, the description of the, the uh, city, just various aspects. But um, the, the temple. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So he first says, I saw no temple in the city, but then he says, that's because, as a way of saying, that's because its temple is the Lord. Now again, what does the temple represent? It represents God dwelling with man, right? They, they, they had the tabernacle that they moved uh, around with them in the Old Testament as they were traveling. 
It was a big tent, but that's where the uh, that's where they worshipped. That's where the, they made the sacrifices. That's where the Holy of Holies was that I was just talking about. And it, the whole thing represented the presence of God in the in the in the camp of His people. And then that was made more permanent um, during uh, Solomon's reign when Solomon built a, a an edifice to replace that movable tent, and that was the temple. And uh, it was destroyed and rebuilt several times, but in Jesus' day, there, there's another temple there um, to replace that one. And uh, again, that, that represents God dwelling among His people. Well, now the reality is here, so there's no, there's no symbolism like that needed. You don't, we don't, there's not a, 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 a tangible thing needed to represent God dwelling with His people. Now we have God dwelling with His people. So He is... It's temple. He is the temple of the holy city. Who is? The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's interesting, isn't it, how those two are tied together. God and the Lamb. And, that, and John does it several times here in the, in the book of Revelation. God and the Lamb. God and the Lamb. And you might be thinking, well, I thought that only God could sit on the throne. I thought that only God ruled. I thought that only God was to be worshipped. Absolutely correct. And that's exactly what's going on here. This is, this is more testimony to the deity of the Lamb. In other words, the deity of Jesus. So the two are inseparably linked. God the Almighty and the Lamb. And then, in chapter 22, he speaks of a river. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's that phrase again. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. So John looks and he says, he sees a river, the river of life. And this is imagery that comes from uh, Ezekiel 47. And he he goes on to tell us that uh, what this river does is bring healing to the nations. That's in verse verse 2. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree, I'm sorry, were for healing, for the healing of the nations. And you look at Ezekiel 47, and it uses that um, uh, description about the river. The river, wherever the river goes, things came to life. It brought life. It brought life to, to dead, the Dead Sea. Now, this is probably... Um, uh, maybe a way of symbolizing the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, but, but certainly this. Um, in other words, just think about the tree of life for a minute. Who, who is the tree of life? Again, it's Christ, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a way of representing Christ. And I, and I think that's what's being communicated here. Um, through the river of life and through the tree of life. In other words, what will sustain us Throughout eternity, or better, I guess I should say, the one who will sustain us throughout eternity is Christ. Just like today, we talk about being saved because of the atoning work of Christ. We are made alive as a result of the work of Christ, right? His life, His death, His resurrection... So we say, because He lives, we live. That's what Jesus said. Because I live, you will live also. Well, we can say the same thing about the eternal state. How is it that we will live eternally? Because we're eating of the fruit of the tree of life. Reaping the benefits of the river of life. Jesus. It's because... Because we're with Jesus, because we're in His presence, because His atoning work is applied to us, His righteousness is applied to us, we live forever. 
And the tree of life, the leaves of the tree of life bring healing to the nation. We, we've seen that phrase several times. And, and uh, again, it's, just talk, it's, it's a way of talking about all, all ethnicities, all ethnic groups. Uh, and by the way, should probably make the point there that there, this is again an indicator that there is one way of salvation. One way. Uh, I was listening to a little podcast this week um, where he was giving uh, excerpts from a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached um, when the state of Massachusetts signed a, a treaty with uh, the uh, the Indians there. Um, not the Mohawks, but... No, it wasn't the Mohawks. Who was it? No, it wasn't the Mohawks. Um, I, I might think of it in a minute. But anyway, one you all, one, another uh, tribe that you always hear about. Um, when Massachusetts signed a treaty with them, the governor of Massachusetts invited Jonathan Edwards to come and preach a sermon. Uh, interesting. You, you probably wouldn't see too many uh, state officials doing that today. Uh, and uh, so Jonathan Edwards came and preached. And what he, what he did essentially was... was uh, of course, we share the gospel. I mean, he didn't just give up and <laughs> he, did, he didn't just get up and give some kind of good speech. He preached the gospel, and he told uh, he, he he apologized in one sense because he said the whole reason we came to this world was to bring you the Indians the gospel, and we haven't done we haven't done that. We haven't done a good job of that. And he said our our government would rather keep you ignorant uh, and illiterate um, because they can deal with you better that way. Um, and and uh, then he and then he went on to share, you know. The gospel, and basically to tell the Indians. In fact, if, uh, he he said uh, to them. He turned and looked at the Indians, and he said, "There is nothing about us that is better than you, but we do have something that you don't have, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ." And he said, "And and I want you to know it, and I want you to." Uh, enter into saving relationship with Christ. So this, there's one message of salvation for all people groups. doesn't matter what part of the world you're born and raised in. doesn't matter what uh, your physical characteristics are. There is one way of salvation. This one means of salvation is how the nations are healed it's through the, atone, the atoning, uh, atoning work of Christ. And then he gives a description here in verse 5, chapter 22, verse 5. Night and night... Well, let me, I better back up to verse 4 here. They will see His face... And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now he's talking here about the the people of God, the nations, believers from all people groups, being in the very presence of God, no longer hindered, by sin or any other, you know, sins within or sins without, you know, things that would pull us away from God or distract us. Because there's no more curse. You know, you look at in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, there's that phrase again, will be in it, that is in the city, and His servants will worship Him. Um, that little phrase right there is is such a blessing to me. Um, because listen, even even number one, we should be worshiping God twenty four seven, or maybe I should say um, every waking moment. Okay, so so uh, we probably should be worshiping in our sleep as well. But but at least every waking moment, we ought to be worshiping Him. Why don't we do that? Because we're sinful. Because this world is cursed. 
Because before we were saved, we, we were totally alienated from God, existing in a fallen state. And even those of us who know the Lord now and enjoy fellowship with the Lord, we're still struggling day by day with sin, sinfulness, in here, not just outside of us, not just that we're being tempted from things coming at us. We're still being changed on the inside. It's not complete. And so even when we consciously um, set our minds to worship, at some level we're, we're hindered by sin. Even when we come together like we're doing this morning to worship corporately, we're hindered by our own sin. And the fact that we, we exist in an, an environment that is um, anti-God, fallen world. But you know what will happen when we're there? We will worship Him. I, I mean, I take that to mean in an absolute sense. Because there won't be any more hindrances. We will worship. We will, be, we, we will have the power to do that to the fullest extent possible for human beings to worship God. We will do that. They will see His face, he goes on to say in verse 4, and His name will be on their foreheads. We've seen that before too, just talking about the people of God being marked out by God. And night will be no more. I've, I've mentioned this before, but that, that again is very significant. Um, the way that Scripture often uses uh, the idea of, of night or darkness is to represent sin, evil, rebellion. So that's the picture here. That's the symbolism. No more night, meaning no more darkness, meaning no more sin. John, this same author, the same one that's receiving and recording this revelation back in his Gospel in chapter 1, says, light, he's talking about Jesus, light came into the world. But men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. That's that's common analogy, common metaphor in Scripture. Light versus darkness, meaning good versus evil, or uh, to be a little more precise, uh, meaning God, the true God, the true and living God, versus evil. God is light, John says. In Him is no darkness at all. That means there's no sin, there's nothing evil found in God. Period. It doesn't exist in Him. He is pure light. Well, guess what? When we're in His presence, when we see His face, there'll be no more darkness. I mean, that, that becomes our experience as well. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we're going to be um, divine. We're certainly not. But our sins will not only be paid for at that point, but completely removed so that sin is no longer a part of our experience. So that we can freely and without hindrance worship Him. Night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And that's the eternal state. Existing in the presence and in the glory of God forever and ever. Now I want to say this as we're wrapping up here. Um, John is describing, um, as well as, uh, well, I should say while he's giving us this description of the holy city. And remember that adjective there, the holy city, which is the church, which, which is all believers. John is describing for us what will characterize us throughout all eternity. And it's this. 
I'm not going to use just one word. I'm probably going to use two or three, and I'm still going to fall way short. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's, it's essentially this. Purity. Or you could say holiness. Back in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, um, gives us a description of marriage where he expounds on it, giving us the, the true meaning, the true nature of marriage and, and the, true, uh, the true, let me say it this way, the, tr- the reason marriage exists okay, uh, is, is, uh, is given to us in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. And in part of that, what he does as, as he's describing how Husbands and wives should relate to one another. And then goes on to say why when he gives the reason behind marriage. As part of that, he says this in, 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 in uh, addressing husbands. In Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Alright, so just keep that in mind. Love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church. So, so what he's saying is, husbands, the standard for loving your wives, the standard is... How Christ loves the church. And then what will follow is description of how Christ loves the church. Some ways in which Jesus' love for the church manifests. In other words, what, what, is, what does He do? What does Jesus do to the church that shows His love for the church? Well, Paul says. He sanctifies her. So again, here's what he says. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Everybody knows that story, right? He laid, Jesus laid down His life for the church. That is, for all who would believe on Him through all time. He laid down His life. He, he gave Himself up at, at the cross. He gave Himself up for her that... There's a reason, Paul said. There's a reason that Jesus died. There's a reason He gave Himself up. So that He might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So, so Jesus came, and He came he, not without purpose. It wasn't... I mean, this whole thing was, was planned and, and uh, orchestrated. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a spur-of-the-moment kind of reaction, decision, or something like that. He came with a purpose. His purpose was to die for the church, all who would believe on Him, to die for them, to lay down His own life for us, so that He might cleanse us through His, through his actions, His deeds, I think that would that that includes his whole life as a man. In other words, he he lived without ever sinning. That was for our sake, because we are commanded by God to be holy, to to live without sinning. We we can't do that. We don't do. We're not able to do that. So Jesus did it for us. So in in his that he he died. He came and he died. Did what he did so that we might be cleansed by His actions and by His Word. Jesus said, my words are life. They they communicate, they minister. Life, we are um, transformed by His truth. Sanctified. Same same, uh, word here. Sanctified by His truth. John 17, 17. Father... Sanctify them by your word, by your truth, rather. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So he came and he acted and he spoke for our sanctification. That is so that we would be cleansed. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Now listen, the way we do weddings uh, traditionally, um, the husband doesn't prepare the bride. Usually it's a group of women, you know, maybe her mother and her best friends and all this and that. And they're trying to prepare her 
to be presented to her husband when she comes down the aisle. And so what they try to do is make her glorious. Except that whole thing's physical, of course. You know, they use nice dress, makeup, all the right, you know, lighting and music. and So that when she starts down the aisle, she is presented in splendor to her husband. And a lot of women, of course, do a good job at that. But you know what? Nobody can prepare the church to be presented to Christ except Christ. So he does this himself. He died, gave himself up for her that he might, that he, he might sanctify, make her holy is, is the meaning there. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church his bride, right, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ is doing in the church, to the church even now. But here in Revelation 22, it's done. It's done. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. No more sin. And they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. Remember back in verse, um, what was it? Verse 10, verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. She, that is the church. The church, she's, at this point, she's made holy. She's radiating the glory of God. Reflecting the glory of God. Without any darkness, night will be no more. He says that twice here. Night will be no more. No more darkness. No, she, she is washed. She is cleansed. She has been presented in splendor because the work of Christ is effective. And so, she, and I'm trying, I know we're, about, we're out of time, but, but I want you to, to, to tile this together. Look at verse 11 again. Having the glory of God, it's, it's talking about the city. The city, having the glory of God, it's radiance like, most, like a most rare jewel, jewel. And he uses these jewels to, you know, just to paint the picture of something glorious. Like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then you get down to the description of, of the gates and the walls. And you see this in verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then he names them. Jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx. And I don't even know what some of these are, but, but I understand the point that he's trying to make. And we, we all do, don't we? When you talk about something being adorned with jewels, rare gems and jewels, what, what's the whole idea there? Splendor, right? Splendor and glory. And the twelve gates, verse 21 says, were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Do you see what he, he's communicating the work of Christ is done. I'm talking about the work of Christ in sanctifying the church and presenting her to Himself with splendor. It's accomplished. And remember the reason for, for the book in the first place, the book of Revelation? Remember the first few chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, where He's sending out the letters to the seven churches of Asia? And he talks about the different uh, issues that they're dealing. Some, sometimes it's persecution coming on from the outside. Sometimes it's sin on the inside. Sometimes it's just like a, a laziness or, uh, you know, just being lethargic. And then each time, you know, there's, there's this call to repentance and, and uh, promise of reward to those who overcome. And we talked about that all the way through. That's the reason for this, right? It, it is encouragement 
for a suffering people. Because in the world you have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer, for I've conquered the world. And so John, uh, Paul rather says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, 1, being confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. You see how He offers them encouragement and assurance? You're, you're suffering. In fact, He tells the Philippians, it's not only been given to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for His name's sake. So He assures them, Christ's work in you will come to completion. There's coming a day when there will be no more night. I mean, sometimes because of the, the, the oppression, the attacks, the trouble, it's almost like in a dark night where you can't see your hand in front of your face, right? And so this, this word of encouragement comes. There's coming a day when there will be no more night. And the glorious splendor that God has promised throughout the ages that He would make His people into so that we could dwell in His presence forever and know the fullness of joy that comes with being in His presence. He is promising to bring all of that to pass. It's a word of encouragement, assurance and encouragement for the church, that Jesus is going to get us to that destination that He has promised He would. Well, several things I want to say here as far as application. Maybe we can do that tonight. Um, So I'll, I'll just close with that word that hopefully you find encouraging. That day is coming. Because Jesus accomplishes what He sets out to do. The work that He's doing in us, He will bring to completion. And we will know that blessed state, that fullness of gladness that comes with being in His presence, that removal of sin from our experience, we will know that experience forever and ever and ever. And we will worship Him. We are the holy city. Let's pray. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, and we'll pray and and be dismissed. Robert, do you mind praying for us?